Hi everyone and welcome to another Bible study here at One Love Live at Love Walk and I want to thank you so much for tuning in to today's broadcast. I pray that you are well and God is blessing in your life. As you know, we come together to read in the Word of God and study it so that we can practically apply it to our lives and also so that we can accomplish the purpose of our lives and discover that purpose. So like I said, I want to thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you are doing well. I pray that God is blessing in your life, that you're growing in your walk with God and your love walk. Um, I hope that you are studying as well on your own. And so we're going to go ahead and jump into today's Bible study. Um, this is a Bible study that I think everyone needs to um, take. I hope that you will take the moment and just write down some of these scriptures at the end because they're really very formative when we think about walking in our purpose, when we think about walking as believers. Um, and so I think these are some steps, some things that we can do um, that's going to help us to do that so that we can understand and make sense of our lives through the eyes of the Lord. And I think that's really important because sometimes I think we're looking at life through our own eyes and not through the eyes of the one that created us. So I want to encourage you, grab your Bible. We're going to go into the book of Luke. It's a very short anchor text um, and you know this one well. Uh, and it is Luke chapter 4 verse 1 to 4. So it's not really that long but we all know this and um, I think this is an integral part of us as believers. So let me go ahead and get started. Remember it's Luke chapter 4 verse 1 and 4. And it says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If you be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And that's Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and 4. And so we all know this verse, but I want to point out uh, some things that he said specifically because sometimes, you know, we read over it and we read it literally and you should read it literally, but sometimes there's some inferences that he is putting into the text and you don't realize that you just picked them up. And so what we try to do is go back and read for comprehension, greater comprehension, because a lot of times when Christ would answer um, Pharisees or, you know, people who asked him questions, he would pull from the Old Testament, you know, from the prophets, he would pull from uh, a lot of the uh, old text, and he would use that, and he would use some of the ideas that um, were popular at that time to help them understand it. And so that's what we're going to do right now. I want you to look at verse 1. It says, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and he was led by the spirit into the wilderness. So it's really important to understand that the spirit led him into the wilderness. But also um, we kind of skip over the fact that it says Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. So Christ, Emmanuel, it's telling us in this verse that he is now full of the Holy Ghost. And this here verse is coming off of the scripture where John the Baptist actually baptizes him. And so 
I want us to look at some ideas that we can find simply from Luke chapter 4 verse 1. We can learn that he was full of the Holy Spirit. And it's one of the reasons why when he was healing the sick, if you can remember, there's actually a Bible study here called Mobs and Multitudes, if you can check it out, in that we go through the fact that the Pharisees said that he had Belizebub or he was possessed by a devil. And so that is how he was able to cast out demons. And Jesus rebuked them saying, why are you, that they were blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And that this here verse here in Luke chapter four, verse one, tells us why he said that. So understand in the Bible, things are connecting together. They're not put all together in sequence, but you have to understand the ways in which, you know, these things articulate and connect together. And so when he tells them you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, he is saying that because he is full of the Holy Ghost right now. It is by the Holy Ghost that he is healing these people. It is by the Holy Ghost that, you know, he um, is able to go into this fast in the desert. So we see that that is why he said that they blasphemed. And also we look at the fact that, um, you know, they are saying that he blasphemed and, you know, they don't really understand what's going on, but it is the spirit that is upon him that enables him in the same way that we are now enabled. So let's look at what it says in Mark chapter three, verse 29, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation because they said he hath an unclean spirit. And this is that exact point, that exact scripture where they explain, um, where in the Bible it explains why he said that they were blaspheming uh, the Holy Spirit. So I want to also pull us back to the second verse in Luke uh, chapter 4, which is part of our anchor text. Now, the second verse says something very interesting. It says, being 40 days tempted of the devil. So um, Jesus wasn't just tempted those three times, okay? He was tempted 40 days, <laughs> according to the Gospel of Luke. Now, I know I've always believed that he was tempted three days. Well, not three days. He was tempted by those three things, you know, bread and uh, stones turned to bread, you know, jumping off the temple. And I think the other one was, you know, bowing before, you know, Satan. So I thought it was three temptations, but that's not actually what happened. So it's possible <laughs> he could have been tempted by all kinds of, Satan could have tempted him with all kinds of things. And let's read it just so that we can back everything up in scripture. And you know, I'm not just pulling this out of thin air. In Luke chapter four, verse two, it says being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. I want to read that one more time. Being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward was hungered. So this tells us for 40 days, you know, the devil was tempting him, okay? It wasn't just those three times. In the Gospel of Luke, we're seeing something very definitive here. And so it lets us know that Satan will tempt you in times of vulnerability, in times of need, in times when you feel that you're not at your 100%, okay? And many times, Satan will tempt you about things you already have. Do you remember, you know? And, and, and so we're going to look back at some areas where Satan 
Satan tempted people who already had what they wanted, okay? And so if you think about what he did with Jesus when he tempted him, I'll give you all of the kingdoms of the earth if you bow down and serve me. He already had all of the kingdoms of the earth. How You have to understand sometimes the wicked one presents you with false promises of things that you already have things that God has already given you or things that God is going to give you. So you have to be careful about doing things outside of his will because a lot of times Satan knows God is going to do something great for you and so he's going to bring you the counterfeit like you've heard the old folks say in the church. And so uh, if you think about even the bread, turn these stones into bread. Like Jesus wasn't going to eat bread again in his life? Of course he was, <laughs> you know, but why would you do that? this at this point in this moment and cause yourself a problem step outside of the will of God when you could just wait you know what I mean and so that's something we have to understand and so when you think about you know fasting spiritual fasting when we fast it is a detriment to our flesh and that's really the point in the physical sense Jesus was quite um, physically depleted, okay? Even though he was full of the Spirit, because remember we read in chapter um, 4, verse 1, that he was full of the Holy Spirit and he was led into the wilderness. So that means his Spirit is full and strong, okay? But it tells us that he was fasting for 40 days. So the tempter came and he tempted his flesh. In all of those instances, it is a temptation of the flesh or the will of man. And what is in the flesh? Things like pride, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. These are physical things. So I think it's important to understand about the ways in which one can be tested, okay? And so food makes the flesh strong. You have to remember that. And the soul uh, gets its strength from something else. And we're going to really look into this because I want you to think, I want to explain this in a way that I think would be very clear. And this is the a way that uh, my mother and various other believers in my life used to explain the fight that is going on between the spirit and the flesh. It is two dogs. Imagine two dogs or two animals that are fighting. One is the spirit and one is flesh. Whichever one you feed will be stronger. The stronger dog is going to win that fight. And that is what you want to remember as a believer as you're living your life. I'm just trying to put this in like simple um, terms so you can understand when you're living your day-to-day -day life, which dog am I feeding? I have two dogs, okay? I have the dog of my own spirit, uh, of the spirit, and then we have the dog of the flesh, and they're fighting each other constantly. The Bible tells us that they war, okay? So you have to understand that this this fight, this tug of war, this struggle and conflict is not going to go away because the Lord did not promise to regenerate our flesh right now, okay? That's for the next um, world. So you see, you have to feed it. Whatever it is that you feed is going to get stronger. 
food makes the flesh strong. Eating food whenever you want it, it makes you know you um, stronger. It makes you you know decide I can decide what it is that I want to eat or whatever. But when you starve it and make it wait and discipline it, you bring it under the control of your spirit and increase self-control. And we can see this with athletes. This isn't spooky people, <laughs> and I don't want it to seem that way. We see this with athletes. Athletes learn how to control their appetite, control the kinds of foods they put in their body, and the ways in which they use their body so that it can be at its optimum strength. And so the Bible is literally teaching us how to do this with the spirit and with the flesh. It's telling us that if you feed the flesh, it's going to become strong. Okay, but when you starve it and you make it wait and you discipline it, you bring it under the control of your spirit and you increase self-control and your spirit is now under the influence of the Holy Spirit as a believer. Okay, so as a believer, this gives the spirit an edge in the fight. And that's the whole point is so that you can win those fights when temptations come. But then you must also feed it what it needs to be strong. That's the word of God. That's meditating on his word. That's spiritual songs and hymns, making melody in your heart, doing the will of God, prayer and supplication and giving thanks always. These are things that help us, that grow our spirit, that makes our spirit strong, that makes us able to hang in for round 10 of the fight. You know, when you're thinking about having endurance, particularly if you're an apostle, you need endurance, okay? You need to be able to kind of lean on the rope sometime and then, you know, bob and weave because you're going to, you're fighting a very strong fight. And I'm not saying other believers aren't either. We all have our fights, but as we learned, you know, in our apostle series that apostles have some very interesting um, sort of contingencies in their life. And that is how we learn from them. We learn from the apostle. He is our help to watch his life and say, okay, let me learn how to do that. And so many Christians, they actually starve their inner man. And that is why he's always losing fights. It's not that Satan is so strong and evil and just, it's that your spirit is so malnourished. This is why pastors and teachers play a really important role in the lives of believers. The teacher dispatches food for the spirit and the pastor ensures you're eating and you're protected and that you're growing well. He asks how you're doing. He offers guidance, counsel, resources. That's one of the reasons I offer resources you know, at lovewalk.substack.com because you can go there and get the resources that you need so that you can continue to grow, so that you can feed your spirit, so that you win those fights. Now, I'm not saying we're going to win all of them. You know, if you're in any fight, you know, sometimes you get sucker punched, you know, and then you have to kind of lean on the ropes. You have to take a break. You have to let whatever you have to heal. But the point I'm making is that it's a fight. So why not give yourself an edge by giving yourself the resources that you need to be strong okay and now I want us to look at Christ's baptism with water and the spirit 
This is actually a model for the priesthood. And I just want to point this out as we move on. I want to cement in your mind that you're not just this random believer walking around saying, I love Jesus. I love God. You should join me too. No, you have work to do and you're a priest. And part of being a priest is being an advocate or a mediator between man and God, which is why we spread the gospel. And we also know the second point of what we do as priests is that we serve the body of Christ. So this is important to understand that when we look at Christ's baptism, which we just saw, because remember, we read in verse um, 1 of chapter 4 that Jesus had just come back from the Jordan, so he had just been baptized. And so when we look at his water baptized uh, baptism in the Spirit, we also see this model for a new priesthood. And this is really a beautiful scene. If you can go back, I want to challenge you to read... Um, chapter 3, if you read Luke chapter 3, where he is actually being baptized, you see this beautiful scene where the old priest, which is John the Baptist, is now baptizing the new priest into his place, into his office. That is what is happening. It's a literal uh, changing of the guard that we get to see. I don't know how much we focus on this moment when John the Baptist is baptizing Christ because this is a true handoff moment, a complete handoff moment. And so we see a succession taking place that is epic. It is John as the Levite is now baptizing Emmanuel, the Christ, the Judean as the new priestly order after the order of Melchizedek of an endless life because Christ is, has an endless life, okay? And so let's go ahead and look at Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22. It says, And now when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And I want you to understand something. It says it descended like a dove, okay? It descended in a bodily shape, like a dove upon him. So it's descending like a dove, but it is in a bodily shape, okay? So we're seeing the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit, descending upon Christ, okay? To indwell with him, okay? Remember, he's God with us. Christ is God with us. The Holy Spirit is God in us, okay? The Spirit that gives us that supernatural knowing and direction in our life. And so here we see the Holy Spirit resting on Jesus Christ. And in times past, and I know you've probably heard this before, but I'll just reinforce it. In times past, as we know, the spirit would rest on men and then depart once the great feat or deed was done, if you can remember that. But now when we see the Holy Spirit indwelling Christ, the first fully man, okay, fully man to be indwelt by the Holy Ghost and empowered for more than just one act of God. I think this is really important. And I think it's really important when we look at him being tempted in you know, uh, the wilderness is that he has 40, 40 days he's being tempted, but those 40 days 
he, because he is indwelt with the power of the Holy Spirit, he is able to resist. He is able to do what we could not do. And so this shows us some of the power of what the Holy Spirit is able to do in our lives. Okay, he didn't just empower him to, you know, say no to the bread and the stones and all that. He empowered him to um, actually sort of um, resist for 40 days, okay? So now he's empowered to do all manner of things through the Holy Spirit, not just one or two great feats. Now he has power for everyday living, and that's something you and I now have. We have power for living. I think there was someone, I cannot even know who, uh, it was some sort of ministry called Power for Living. God, if you know who that is, you know, put it in the uh, section, comment section for me. But now we have true power for living, okay? And if we also look in verse 22, God declares who Christ is. It is a veritable Barak moment. When we are looking at this scripture, Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Christ is actually barocked by the Holy Spirit, by God, when the Holy Spirit indwells him. Look at what it says. He says, this is my son. Okay? It's a Barak moment. For the Bible teaches us that he was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. And here we have God himself revealing his son. We also see in this verse, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we know to please God, we must have faith for it is impossible to please God without it. So we're looking, when we see John the Baptist baptizing Christ, we're looking at a succession, a changing of the guard. The Levitical priesthood is now ending. And now this new priestly order, this kingly Okay, it's a royal priesthood because it is the house of Judah. Okay, after the order of Melchizedek, so it's an, of an endless life, we see this handoff. We also see a Barak moment when the Lord Baraks him and said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that is what God does to you and I. He gives us a Barak moment. I know you have a Barak moment when God really came through for you. Ask yourself, how did he come through for me? How did God use me powerfully? And you might learn your name. I want us to go back to Luke chapter 4 and 1, okay? It says the Spirit indwelt in Christ, Emmanuel, and it leads him into the desert. The Spirit immediately begins leading him into his purpose to destroy the works of the devil. The first thing that happened when he got indwelt with the Holy Spirit was not that he went out and started feeding people bread and healing people and preaching. The first thing he went was to go face the devil. I think it's absolutely important to understand that. He immediately launched into his purpose. Okay, can you remember when you first became a believer? Do you remember some of the first challenges that you faced? They were telling stories about your purpose. God launches you immediately. God isn't just going to wait around. <laughs> Imagine what he did with Paul. The man, I guess maybe in a week, the man was going to kill, you know, Christians. And then in the, ne in the next couple of days, the guy is out, you know, preaching the gospel. You know, can you imagine how quickly God put him on track? How quickly God put him on the job? You know, that's amazing. And that's what we have to understand as believers. Purpose is instant. Purpose is right now. Even if you don't know what it is, that's why I encourage you to learn it and find out so life doesn't seem so crazy. I can imagine people who are apostles are just bouncing off the walls because they have no idea what's going on in their life. 
because they haven't discovered their purpose and their purpose is so powerful. And so if you've fallen away, maybe you're just listening because, you know, I don't know. Um, and you, you, I want to challenge you to go back and find out God was saying what he was saying when you first became a Christian. Even if you fell away, even if you're not doing everything, even if you're not sure, I want you to go back to that time that you confessed with all of your heart, with all of your might. What was God saying? What was that trial or that test trying to do in your life? Sometimes you need to be objective about the challenges you're facing to better understand your part and what God wants of you and how to overcome it, okay? Now let's compare the first temptation in the garden with Adam and Eve and the second temptation in the wilderness with Emmanuel. And the reason I call it the second temptation is because we understand that Christ was a kind of Adam, okay? And Adam and Eve, they're one thing, okay? A lot of times people try to separate them. And yes, there is that. But when God looks at Adam, he looks at Eve too, okay? Because she's considered a part of him. So we're looking at Adam and we're looking at Eve. And when we look at it, we see that the enemy tempted Eve with the same things. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But for today, we don't want to focus on that. We want to focus on her response, okay? I think this is really key because Satan tempts no matter who it is. And that's something you have to understand if you're going to be a believer. If you're on the earth, he's going to tempt you. So he, in a way, is kind of impartial. He's kind of like an impartial constant of destruction and devastation. It even says so in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 when it says he goes to and fro the earth seeking who he may devour you know people often take satan personally because he's malicious but he really doesn't care who you are he is trying to get you to do the most devastating thing he is doing this with great wicked people and small wicked people he doesn't care he's not just destroying by proxy he is destroying the proxy too I want you to understand that he's not just trying to get you through somebody else. He's trying to get the person that he's using as well. <laughs> you know what I mean? Think of the, the possessed man in scripture. Okay, if you can remember some of the pet possessed men, they were also destroying themselves. Okay, or even the wicked men who came against God's people. Consider those folks. He was empowering them to be crushed by the armies of the Most High God. He was empowering them to be destroyed. I think it's important to understand that Satan is trying to set you up, okay? He, he doesn't care whether you're good or bad. He doesn't care whether you like Jesus or not. He's trying to bring you down, whoever you are, because you have a chance to receive Christ, and he doesn't. He doesn't have a chance. So he was empowering them to be crushed by the armies of the Most High God. He knew God could not be defeated. That's the thing about Satan. He knows God can't be defeated. So what do you think he's doing when he sort of tempts people or pushes people to attack believers, to attack God's plans? What do you think he's doing? He's trying to destroy those people. It's, he knows that they can't stop God. So he knows that, you know, you can't defeat God. So he's just seeking to destroy even the men who are just seeking to destroy the Hebrews or God's people. Remember, his goal is to destroy who he may, 
that means whoever is available or whoever allows him, he doesn't really care as long as he gets to destroy someone. That's really key to understand about Satan. He's not just like out here targeting believers. See, that's his goal is to get people. It's not even you in particular. Somewhere in the Bible, it does uh, say that Satan, it doesn't really say that Satan is particularly targeting believers. Now, if you can find that verse, show me because I want to see it. But I'm not so sure that's really what he's doing. If you um, kind of note in scripture, think about what he's doing. He's really just going around chasing everybody. He's that crazy kid on the playground that chases everybody, okay? I think maybe we might cite Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, where Jesus said to Peter that Satan has a desire to sift you like wheat. But that's only one instance, and I'm pretty sure he wants to sift other people like we do. I think everyone, you know, believer or not, is his target. I mean, if you think about Judas, not only did Judas betray Jesus, he knew Jesus was going to get up. So what was, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and but what was the final end result? Who laid down and died in that scenario and never got back up? Judas, not Jesus. <laughs> Judas was the one that never got up again. So who was the one that truly was destroyed in that scenario? Not Jesus, Judas. You have to understand he destroys by proxy and then he destroys the proxy. And that is something that you have to understand. We can see this throughout life, even just with regular people. And so I do think Satan tries to destroy people with the same vices or influences often and at various times in their life. For instance, he might always try to get a man to be entrapped in a sexual affair or for maybe another man, he might get him involved with the wrong group. And there, this is kind of like a recurring temptation that he faces from the enemy. A woman might find that throughout her life, she is the target of sexual abuse or something like that. Um, Sometimes he does target people with kind of the same themes in their life, but to specifically I'm targeting believers. No, I think, I think he's trying to get rid of everybody because even though you may not see it, you may think, oh, I'm just, I'm not a Christian. I'm not any of that. You still have hope. You have, there is the possibility that you could accept Christ. And that's a problem for him because he doesn't have that. And he's trying to get that away from every unbeliever. And that's why we have work to do as believers. Okay, so from what I can see in scripture, the saints are Satan's only human resistance on the earth, as we see in Revelations. And I am not so sure believers actually face the worst kinds of attacks. And that's possibly even because we learn in Job chapter 1, verse 10 and 12, that God has a hedge of protection around his people. Job, I mean, Satan literally said to God, hey, I can't touch him unless you move your hedge. And even when he did move part of the hedge, he said, you I'm putting a hedge around his life. So that means there was never any danger that Job would die. It means that there's certain uh, boundaries that are in place that Satan cannot encroach when it comes to believers. And that's what Job shows us in the Bible. But other people don't actually have that. And so I think it's really important that when we look at this and we see the protection that comes 
you know, with God, we begin to understand what happened even in the garden. So when we look at Eve being tempted to eat the fruit and understand that Satan is just doing his malicious job, really understand this. If you, you know, think, oh, it's just Christians or, oh, it's just, no, he's just doing his malicious job. Satan is like a sociopath or some sort of psychopath whose only goal is to hurt people. So we're going to look at what that sociopath snake did in Genesis, okay? It says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God had said, Ye shall not eat of it neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 and 7. And I want you to notice something here, that just like Jesus, he tempted Eve. It's why he's called the tempter, okay? It's what he does, okay? Don't take names for granted in the Bible. Even Satan's many names belie who he is. But I want us to look at the response of Eve and then the response of Jesus, okay? Because Eve did something that was like our Lord in the wilderness, and then she did something that was not like him. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, she used the word of God to rebuke or to counter the temptation of the devil, okay? You say, well, when did she do that, okay? She did that when she said, well, the Lord said we shouldn't eat from it because of A, B, C, D. Okay, that's quoting scripture, the word of the Lord, the logos, the rima word of God, because what we live on the word of God, right? Like what we talk about, we pray and we meditate and so forth. It is on the word of God. And so she's using the word of God to respond to something that is countering it. So, so far she's doing a good job. But what happens next? Satan replies with a lie or a half-truth, which is actually a lie, and further temptation, okay? He says, no, you won't surely die, but if you eat it, guess what other good, wonderful things will happen to you, <laughs> you know? That is literally what he said. He says, you won't surely die without actually qualifying that assertion. And he then tells her all these benefits from the tree. So what really does this mean when we look at Eve's temptation and the way that she responded and Christ's temptation and the way he responded? How did the woman and the man who knew the truth about eating from the tree, who even quoted God's word against the devil, end up eating from the tree? You can't say they didn't know what God had said because she quoted it. She said it almost verbatim. It's really simple how that happened. They believe the word of Satan. That's it, period, point blank. Okay, this is the issue for us all. Who do you believe? It is belief that will determine what you do next. If you believe rain is coming, Noah, you're going to build an ark. If you believe that God will save you with what is in your house, widow, you will collect as many of the oil pitchers as 
you can. You see, the ultimate point is believing. Trust in the God that lives and that loves you. The God that built you. And I remember when I was a little girl, when I wanted something and I was denied it, I would just get so upset with my mom. Like, oh my God, can't believe you didn't give me that. And, you know, she would look at me and say something really interesting. She would say, if I actually hated you so much, I could have killed you a long time ago. <laughs> and that always brought me to my, I would think, oh yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah, she did make me breakfast yesterday and she... And, and it, it helped me in a logical sense. And that's what we have to understand about God, okay? If God truly did not love me, he doesn't have to do anything. He's not obligated to give you your next breath, okay? That's the thing. People are always getting angry at God when he's permitting so much good to happen in their life. He permitted them to wake up in the morning, to breathe, their heart to pump, their mind to think, them able to eat and walk, and whatever it is that, that, that their life is, he permitted it. And yet, we are willing to not take him at his word when he makes a promise. We doubt him. We say, hath God said? So our goal truly in temptation is believing God's word about it, not just what we want or our moments of weakness. So our quoting scripture isn't just to do it to sound savvy and and not just to do it as a practice, but to do it in the sense that we actually believe that word because we see Eve quoting the word of God, but then ending up eating the apple. There is a necessity to believe in the goodness of God, the wholesome purity of God that wants good for you and who whose word is for your good, even if it is prohibitive. That's really key. There is a need to believe in that word as much as it, as if we quote it. So it doesn't matter if you quote it, if you don't believe it. This means it is having the word come alive in your heart with faith that gives it power. And so Eve is a picture of someone quoting the word of God without actually believing it. You have to believe, to trust, or as we like to call it today, have faith in God, to take him at his word entirely. And sometimes that takes work. Just like we see for the man who says, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief in Mark chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Do you remember that guy? It is unbelief that always leads to being dispossessed of God's goodness. And we can see that in the Garden of Eden. And also with the Hebrews in the promised land where God swore that that generation would not enter his rest. Do you know why? Well, this is a good one. I wonder if I should tell you it. Okay, I would give you five seconds. Why could they not enter his uh, rest? Why did he say that for the children, for the Hebrews? One, two, three, four, five. Yep, you guessed it, unbelief. Okay, it wasn't because of sin and debauchery, it was because of unbelief. And I want to go back to Jesus' temptation for just a brief moment to show you something. Let's look at the temptation of the stones to bread in Matthew chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you will be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you actually understand the magnitude of what Jesus Christ just said to Satan in this verse? I mean, I can be honest, I have not really thought about it 
until I really just sat down and thought about it. You see, we read over this verse as though Jesus is hungry and he uses scripture to just rebuke Satan, which is actually what he does. But he's saying something else. He's saying, I'm not alive because of food. I live at the will and the word of God. He was saying hunger, need, lack is not a danger to my existence. That is what he's saying. So if there is no bread, that doesn't mean I'm going anywhere. And that's what we have to understand about so many things in life. If there were no bread, if God's word has ordained for me to live 33 years, I will still live 33 years without bread. (laughs) You have to understand, he didn't, when he said, turn these stones into bread because you're hungry, he's saying, I don't live by bread only. I live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And it goes back to you and I in many, many circumstances. It goes back to Eve in the garden. She didn't need to know as God to be like God. Your needs are not going to deliver you or take you out. Just let me tell you that. It's God's word that has the final say. God gives the increase. Yes, you can run out of money, you can run out of friends, you can run out of connections, you can run out of opportunities, but God's word is what you live on. It's how you accomplish purpose. Jesus was saying bread is not the only thing keeping me alive. You see, we steal, we worry, we kill to get what we want, not knowing it is God's word that is keeping us. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is what is making you live, not just your bread. You can't be cornered. You know why you can't be cornered? Because God can't be cornered. Listen, he wanted Jesus to keep going. So when they crucified him, that man, he just got up out of the grave and kept on going. And that is what he's trying to get us to see in this verse. You see, Your thinking can actually influence your faith. And this is why we are challenged to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Because if we don't understand that it is not by things that we accomplish, but it is by God that we accomplish, then if we don't understand that, then when something comes, an obstacle comes, or someone says this or that, we will lose hope. We will follow whatever Satan says when he tempts us. Now, I want you to look at verse um, 4 in Luke chapter 4, and we're going to look at this. Um, It says, And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And now I want you to replace the word bread with whatever it is that you think you need in this season. I don't know what it could be. I mean, I'm not in your life. Maybe it's the foreclosure on your house, okay? They can foreclose the house and you can still live in it. You can miss the big business deal and you can still grow your business. You can get overlooked by promotions and still move ahead. God doesn't need the men who stand in your way to move for him to do what he wants to do in your life. They cannot stop God's will. No one can, really. I can't stop it. That's why a lot of times... 
I just tell you, I can't tell you what it is that you're doing. I can only give you the word of God. I'm not going to try and tell you, no, that's forbidden for you to do, you know, if it's not in the word of God. I'm not going to do that because I can't stand in your way and I wouldn't want to do it, quite frankly. Okay? And this is why the Bible tells us that no weapon formed against you shall prosper. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, because man lives by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, not by anything else. And I want to encourage you to have faith in God. Trust that he is with you, not just that he is coming through, but that he loves you and he is not going to do anything that is meant to destroy you. God needs you to fall into his arms and trust his way no matter what that way is. Testing, and I want you to hear me as I close, testing is God's way of showing you who you are and what you are capable of and getting you to use the kingdom power that he has made available to you. Do you think God doesn't know who you are? The one who barracks doesn't know who he barracked? The one who is the potter, he doesn't know what he created? You see, sin makes you live a hen-pecking life. You're used to pecking in the dirt with the chickens when God is trying to show you that you are an eagle. You're a lion trying to curl up in the lap of your master like a house cat. What is your master? Is your master drugs or porn or your boss or another tribe or another race or your appetites or your needs to please? Is that your master? God doesn't want that master for you. Testing is for you to master that which tries to master you. When God has made you to master, he has made you to be a master. Testing is for you, not God. God knows who you are. He made you. But I have to tell you, friend, you don't know who you are just yet. And even Paul admits to that. He says that we don't know what we shall be. So testing stops you from tooting around like a Volkswagen Beetle car when you're actually an all-weather hypersonic missile-loaded ground and air control tank. I think a lot of believers don't understand they're like a high-powered military weapon and they go around acting like they're some little jeep or some little tiny bicycle and God has equipped you and outfitted you with all kinds of amazing gifts so that you can take over for the kingdom of God. Imagine the Lamborghini sports car who thought he was a station wagon. See, when he allows God to take the wheel and then Jesus jams his foot on the accelerator and he goes from zero to 60 in a second, he's horrified. What's going on? I'm just a lowly station wagon. No, you're not. God knows he made, who he, he made you a Lamborghini sports car. And that's scary sometimes, but that is what God is trying to do. He knows what you can do, and so he knows the demands that he can place on you. You see, he is the master engineer that knows that he put an engine in you that can go 100 miles per hour, no matter how you look on the outside, no matter what people have said about you in your life, no matter how you feel or think. God knows who he made you. That's why he needs you to renew your mind. And that is why testing is so important. Not so that God can find out who, he is, who you are, but so that you can find out who God said you are. 
Christians are so afraid of the devil that they can't see that they are the ones that chase 10,000, not the devil. Testing helps you find your superpower. And I pray today that God gives you the courage in whatever test or trial you're in to see the superpower that he is trying to reveal to you. Thanks so much. God bless you. Bye.